0: Ha oh, the Lord's day. I love the Lord's day. Amen. This is the day where we prioritize worshiping God with each other. This is the day where we say all other things that we do in this world take second place to gathering with each other uh, and worshiping Christ. That in itself is very countercultural. The series that I'm doing right now is entitled Countercultural, and uh, it's about how the Bible has called us to be different, to think differently, and to live differently than people in the world. I don't know about you, but a lot of times we don't set out to try to be the guy that's different than everyone else. The person that's different draws attention to themselves. They get picked on. Maybe they get persecuted. But yet, this is the life that God has called us to. we looked at several categories so far in, um, uh, in this series about how God has called us to be different, and how we're to live counterculturally. I began this sermon a few weeks ago entitled uh, Countercultural Goals. If you have not yet listened to that message, please go back and listen to that message. You can get it on our website. If you don't have countercultural spiritual goals, then basically you're not going to be able to live in a countercultural way in any uh, other area of your life a couple of weeks ago we talked about uh, a countercultural leadership we looked at this uh, godly leader Hezekiah from the Old Testament and then last week I know that several of you were not able to be here last week because of uh, because of the weather but we looked at our countercultural view and understanding of life we have some very di- as Christians we have some very different views of how we b- believe that life originated and also some different views from the culture about how life should be cherished we believe that human Life should be cherished from birth until natural death. And so today, I want to step a little further into this and talk about some things that I believe are going to be extremely countercultural uh, that we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about countercultural relationships. Countercultural relationships, specifically family relationships, marriage relationships, romantic relationships. Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about this. I'm going to be using various scriptures today. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 is just going to be one of many that I'm going to use. This sermon is going to be a little more, I guess you could say a little more topical than uh, probably 99% of my other sermons. But I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you want to have a Christian relationship, or do you want something that looks more secular or something that looks more cultural? If if you want something that looks more cultural or more secular, that is extremely easy to find. You can find just about any source that can teach you how to do that. In fact, you don't really have to do anything except just kind of follow the crowd. But if you want a Christian relationship, a distinctively Christian relationship, There are some things that you're going to have to do that are going to go against the grain of this culture. There are some principles that you're going to have to believe that, quite honestly, people in our culture are going to laugh at you about. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, how culture has a lot of standards about marriage, family, relationships, sex, gender, gender roles. They have all of these things, and they're contrary to God's Word. And what I'm going to give to you today, I'm going to give you kind of a bird's eye view of what Scripture says about these things. I'm not going to be able to go into detail about any one of these, but I'm going to give you kind of a foundational structure. Uh, I guess you could say just some basic standards, basic building blocks of what God's Word says about these issues. And essentially the way that I've organized this message is I'm going to give you a series of truth statements and really just one scripture that kind of backs it up. There's there, there's a lot of scripture to back up all these truth statements that I'm going to give you today, but I'm really just going to kind of give you one sampling, one example, and then at the end of this message, I'm going to put one slide up on the screen. And I've used this before, uh, one slide that basically summarizes, uh, summarizes all of the basic things that God says about marriage, family relationships, gender, and sex. And you can take a picture of it with your phone, and you can go by, you can go back and look at it, uh, look at it. Uh, later and study it if you'd like to. I want to start off first off with just one of the most basic teachings that um, we should even be teaching our children uh, uh, from, from, uh, from the time that they're very young, but one of the basic teachings about marriage and about family and relationships and gender and sex that we can find in the whole Bible is you just can't get any more basic than this. And here it is, sex is for married people, it's for married people. I mean you just really can't get any more basic than this when it comes to what the Bible says about relationships. Um, Here's a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians. There's just three verses that I have just sampled from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about how sex is only for married people. Now, our culture doesn't believe this. Our culture laughs at this. People in our culture scoff at this standard. Uh, Our culture has long since abandoned this standard. Um, Our culture basically says, at best... Our culture basically says, well, it's okay if you're in love. And at worst, our culture basically teaches that it's okay to just be intimate with anybody that you want to, whenever you want to, for whatever reason. Just enjoy yourself. Where scripture calls this, Fornication. Uh, Well, the commands of 1 Corinthians 6 are directed mainly at those of you who have never been married and are dating. So let, let me just get a show of hands. People in the first service, didn't have a whole lot of people in this category in the first service. How many of you are unmarried and have never been married? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everybody in this section, all these college students. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is basically... Basically, is directed mainly towards this big section right here, and those of you who also fit um, in that category. And to summarize it, basically, what the scripture teaches: get married or stay single. Get married or or or, or stay or excuse me, get married or stay single. That was real smart. <laughs> Man, you just can't get a more intelligent statement than that, right? Give. <laughs> Get married or stay celibate. Get married or stay celibate. That's what, that, is, th- that is what is, is, is talked about here, right here. It says there's a lot of sexual immorality. Each man should have his own wife. Each man his own husband. And if you're dating someone and you can't exercise self-control, uh, get married. Um, but uh, otherwise, uh, you need to stay celibate. Um, our culture does not hold to this standard of purity at all. I mean, they just have long since abandoned it. Um, the culture says, date a lot of people, and that'll teach you what you're looking for in a marriage partner. You know, I don't really see that in God's Word. And do you know some of the most successful marriages that I see from people who are older, they're not produced from people who dated a whole bunch of people whenever whenever they were unmarried. Um And here's some practical advice for you. If you're not ready to get married, just don't date. I mean, that's really the whole purpose. Unless you can do it honorably. And if you can't do it honorably, don't do it. Um, God's Word says um, to remain celibate uh, or get married. That's That's the standard. A string of failed relationships does not prepare you for marriage. A string of unhealthy relationships, a string of of impure relationships, in no way prepares you for marriage. It would be better not to bring any of that baggage into the relationship that is going to lead to marriage. Now, what I'm about to say is considered completely ridiculous in our culture, but it is God's will that you are intimate with one person your whole life, just one person. And that's the person that you marry and you stay married your whole life, which is the second major building block of marriage. Number two, marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. Um, if sex is for married people, then marriage is for life. Uh, Jesus said some pretty strong statements about this. This is just one of those statements in Matthew chapter five. Uh, Jesus starts with a very culturally accepted statement that I believe that people in our culture would easily embrace whoever wants to divorce his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce Uh, that's basically according to even the laws of our state and probably most of our nation you want to get a divorce Uh, just go make it legal and write up a certificate there are lawyers uh, standing in line to get rich off of your failed relationship just go and get a divorce. Uh, that's a cultural statement. He says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, now he uses another term, he says makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Some marriage for life. The culture says you deserve to be happy. And if you're not happy, then just get a divorce. Cultural Christians say God doesn't expect you to be miserable if it's not working out, do what's best for you. It is shocking to me to listen to the advice that Christian people give to other Christian people when it comes to marriage. It's shocking to me. In fact, it's so shocking to me that oftentimes when someone comes to me and they're struggling with their marriage, I will say to them before they walk out of my office, I will say to them, now I want you to be very cautious about listening to other people at this point in your life. You need to read God's Word. Because often, well-meaning Christian friends give extremely bad biblical advice. Why? Because they just want you to be happy and they have your best interests at heart. And so, um, what I often say is that if your friends and even your family, your mom, your dad, your sister, brother, whoever, if they're giving you advice about marriage and they're not quoting scripture, then it could be that maybe you don't listen to their advice. Jesus said divorce is adultery unless there has been adultery. We are called to complete faithfulness and fidelity in marriage. That standard is shocking to our culture. And you know, it was shocking to the early disciples. I encourage you to look up Matthew, not right now, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 through 12 and read it. Jesus reiterated this statement at another point in time to his disciples. And his disciples looked at Jesus and said, are you kidding me? If that was the case, it would be better for a man not to marry And then Jesus said something interesting. He said, well, uh, there were eunuchs that were born that way, there were eunuchs that were made that way, and there are eunuchs that have decided to be that way for the kingdom of God. To summarize what Jesus is saying is basically he's saying, look, if you can't make that commitment, if you can't make that lifelong commitment, then just don't, don't, don't make it. Don't go before God and swear to him these vows if you're not ready. And I say that to every, every, every engaged couple that I counsel. And I've, I've shared this with you all before, but typically it goes something like this. I'll say, now listen, when we're going to go to the altar, you're going to swear to God. You're going to make a vow, and it's going to be for life. And if you're not ready for that, don't do it. And the bride-to-be normally goes, oh, it's just great. You know. The groom, he's like, what? So, don't make it if you're not ready. Because, the, by the way, do you know who hates divorce worse, uh, about as much as God does? Those who have been divorced. I find that whenever I share Bible verses like this, I have divorced people come up to me afterwards and say, You tell them, preacher, you tell them, don't let them go through what I went through. Don't let them experience the pain and the hurt that I went through. Um, the Bible says it's bad for a reason it's hurtful, it's damaging. And um, so uh, this is in no way to cast aspersions at those of you that have had the unfortunate uh, this unfortunate thing happen in your life. Now, uh, because there's so much divorce, and because it's hurtful, our culture has come up with an alternative for you. Okay, it's a try it before you buy it kind of mentality. It's a we we'll just live together and kind of kind of test it before you get married. And so this leads me to the next building block that really we should avoid, and that is unmarried people should not cohabitate. This is extremely popular in our culture. It's a get-to-know-you-better mentality. It's a uh, try-it-before-you-buy-it kind of thinking. The problem is that it starts the relationship off immediately with distrust. It's, I'm not ready to commit to you yet because I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure about us and whether or not we're going to make it. So, yeah, let's just kind of live together first. That makes absolutely absolutely no sense. Marriage is all about trust. And I'll tell you something else. Marriage is all about faith. Faith. One of the biggest faith steps you will ever take is getting married because listen, newsflash, all right everybody in this section Newsflash if you don't know it. marriage is extremely hard. It just ask my wife, she'll tell you how hard it is to be married to someone like me and it really doesn't matter who you're. Marriage is extremely hard. You should only do it listen. you should only do it as a step of faith. Which means you pray about it. Which means you only marry someone unless you ask God first. And God says yes. That's, 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 that's what I did with Kelly. I mean, she checked all the boxes. She was a Christian. and I mean, all of that. And I wanted to marry her so bad, but the Lord hadn't told me yet. And I prayed about it, and I never will forget the day whenever God said yes, you absolutely can marry that person. It's according to my will. And now... Whenever things get really, really difficult, I don't have to to second guess it. I can look back to that day and say, God put his stamp of approval on our relationship. And so I will never leave her, no matter what, because of my commitment to God. And she might leave me, but I'm going with her. I'm following her wherever she goes. Because that's just uh, just the calling that we're... um, we call to. Anyway, um, it is a step of faith. It surprises me how many Christians are doing this. It surprises me how many Christian parents are proving of it. It's really shocking. And someone would say, Well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal: Isaiah, God's word says, Woe to those who call what is evil good. And woe to those who call what is good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. In other words, who are we to celebrate and flaunt a life of fornication as if it's okay? I'm going to live and fornicate with someone that I'm not married to and expect you to approve of it and expect you to celebrate it with me. That is calling What is evil, good, and that is calling what is good, evil. And listen, this is no different than what the LGBTQ community wants us to do. They want us to approve of and celebrate their lifestyle. This is no different. Christians who cohabitate are doing the same thing. And of course, this leads me into the next principle that I want to talk to you about. Only people of opposite genders should marry. You see, I told you I was going to give you a bird's eye view, kind of a, a basic framework for marriage that was countercultural. This is extremely countercultural right now. But only people of opposite genders should marry. In our nation, Obergefell versus Hodges, I believe 2014, 2015, can't really remember, 2013, something like that, legalized gay marriage in our nation. It did not make it okay with God. It did not change what God thinks about it. It did not change his word. Um, Romans 1, 20, chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 27 meant the same thing 10 years ago that it means now. It means the, sa- it means the same thing 2,000 years ago as it means now. It says that that same-sex relationships are dishonorable, that they're contrary to nature, that they are in error, that they are against God's design. The culture says, don't judge me because of who I love. That's what the culture says. The culture says, don't judge me for who I love. But the Bible commands us who to love. The Bible commands us who not to love. The Bible commands us how we should love. If you're not okay with that, then I can just tell you Christianity is not for you. The Bible tells us that we should love God. The Bible tells us we should not love the world. The Bible tells us we should love what is evil and cling to what is good. The Bible tells us that we should um, abhor what is evil, that we should hate what is evil. The Bible tells us to love other people. The Bible tells us to love fellow Christians. The Bible gives us all types of commands in who to love and how to love and who not to love. The Bible tells husbands exactly how to love their wives. We'll get there in just a minute. Your life group lesson was on that today. The Bible also tells wives exactly how they're supposed to love their husbands. I mean, Jesus said, if you don't love me, then excuse me, if if you love me, then you'll obey my commandments. The Lord tells us who to love, how to love, and who not to love. Now I will tell you, you can find churches, so-called churches, in every city that don't agree with that, that interpret Romans chapter 1 differently. You can find an errant theology that embraces same-sex relationships and says it's okay, but it's not. And it's not because, and here's the next building block, there are two distinct genders, male and female. Okay, There are two distinct genders. There are men... And there are women. I never thought I'd have to preach this stuff. I mean, I, I really did. And I never thought that we would have to clarify that there are male people. And that there are female people. And that they are different from one another. And But the culture says you can identify however you want to. The culture says you're not bound to the gender of your birth. You are. You are. It's, it, they call it non-binary. You're. You're not bound. There's a. The culture says there's a spectrum of masculinity and femininity. And there's a, there's a spectrum of what it means to be. I can't say that word. I've done that before. Femininity. Whatever. See, I can't even say it right. There's a spectrum of gender, and. I, I mean, when I look at Dave Charlton, I can believe it. I mean, for sure. I mean, one of the most unmasculine, you know, uh, guys among us, right? But the culture teaches that. They said that there's this spectrum that you can move on and, and God's word says different. And, and Dave's a dude. He's a dude. I'm just picking on him. Um, God's word says there is male and there's female. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and and, and chapter 2, the Bible gives us this, this creation account. I mentioned this last week. It says he created them male and female. The Bible doesn't say that about any other created being in the opening chapters of Genesis. But it's a point of emphasis for whenever God created male and he created female and he created both of them in his image. So when a woman is feminine, she, she is embracing the image of God and why she was created. And the same thing for a, for a man when he is masculine. And males and female were created differently. Do you know there's a different creation account for Adam than there was for Eve? The Bible says that Adam was made from a dirt clod. As if the Lord was just walking around and he saw this, this mud ball laying on the ground and he picked it up and he fashioned it to, from the tomb of man. He says he formed the man of dust. But with the woman, it was different. The Bible says he put the man to sleep, he took one of his ribs, and it's almost as if he took his time. It's almost as if he said, this is, this is going to be the crown of my creation right here. Everything else, God just kind of spoke into being. But the scripture says he formed male and female and it looks like we have more detail um, about how he created woman than how he created man and so God's Word says this we were created differently and listen we were created for different purposes in marriage and so clearly men should be masculine women should be feminine I remember one time I said this in front of a group of people and I had some guy in the back say well what's masculine and I thought I just, I don't know, I don't know, how do you, I mean, do we we really have to, I mean, I know, but I don't know how to explain it. It should just be intuitive, right? I mean, we should just, I mean, I shouldn't have to go into this long explanation. Now, I want to spend a a little bit more time on this because in our culture, this is becoming hate speech. This is becoming discriminatory. This is quickly becoming something in our culture that if you say this, you are going to be called evil and wrong. In fact, there are laws on the books right now in 20 states in America that says that clinical psychologists and professional counselors are not allowed to help a child who identifies with one gender to help that child to see that they should embrace the gender of their birth. Now there is an ethical consideration as to whether or not uh, ethically uh, ethically a counselor should do this. The point is the government is trying to say that we should not teach children, that counselors should not help children with a clear self-identity problem that they have. In their life now, in D.C., it's illegal to do this with adults. In Canada, it is uh, illegal nationwide under the threat of a two to five-year imprisonment. And if they can tell counselors they can't say this in the counseling room, how long is it going to be before they tell preachers they can't say it in the church house? I just believe government should stay out of it. Government shouldn't tell you how you should identify. If you want to identify as a goat, the government shouldn't have anything to say about it whatsoever, and they shouldn't have anything to say about what we say about it either. Now listen, I want to talk about this, just, and I don't know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but this for a lot of people is a major self-identity problem. And I know that some of you look at people who struggle with this and you can't understand it. But the truth is, don't we struggle with identity problems all the time? Do you sometimes see yourself in a way that is contrary to Scripture? I started thinking about this and we do this all the time. How often do we find Christians thinking, oh, well, look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. Look how worthy I am. Well, that's not, what, that's not what the Bible says about of us uh, about us and, and our sinfulness. The Bible says that we need to perceive ourselves as sinners, but we don't like to do that. And how often do we sometimes view ourselves as unloved? Well, nobody loves me. Well, that's a self-image problem. You see, th- this is the same thing that a lot of people in our culture are struggling with, except they struggle with self-identity in the area of gender. And the rest of us struggle with self-identity issue in other ways. Well, I, I'm never qualified to go share my faith with that person. I could never do that. We, we struggle with those things all the time. And so what I'm saying is, is that maybe a little more compassion is in order for people who struggle with these types of things because there are a lot of people who struggle with it quietly. There's a lot of people they don't tell anybody. They struggle with it on the inside and we have got to provide a safe environment for people to say, hey, this is a struggle that I have in my life. Okay, lest I, uh, lest I haven't already offended the majority of you, uh, let me go ahead and step into this last one, which I'm sure is to strike a nerve, and that is that husbands and wives are assigned different roles in marriage. If you want a Christian marriage, you have to affirm this. If you want a Christian marriage, you have to embrace what the Bible says is the role of the wife and the role of the husband in marriage. I encourage you to read Ephesians chapter five. I've just given you uh, the one verse uh, that's commanded to wives and the one verse that's commanded to husbands. There's a lot more there. If you want a Christian marriage, you must embrace not not just this passage, but many other passages that talk about this, even the one back in Genesis um, that I mentioned before. Now listen, Women's liberation has, uh, has uh, came on strong in our nation 40, 50 years ago, and it has been great for our culture. After all, women should be allowed to vote. They should have equal opportunity for employment. Um, they, they, they should have all of that. And it would be ridiculous for us to say, no, because you're a woman, you can't be a manager, or you can't have a job, or you can't vote. I was, uh, there's not too many of us. That, that believed that and if you did um, you would probably, hopefully you would be scared to admit it because it's just not acceptable really in any way, culturally or from a Christian standpoint um, and so we get all this, gen, all this gender neutral stuff, like I think about the Ace commercial, Ace hardware, uh, so whenever, you, whenever I was growing up it's uh, Ace is the place with the helpful hardware man it was man Right. Well, now they changed it. Now it's Ace is the place with the helpful hardware folks. Listen, that's fine. There's nothing unbiblical about that. If that's what they want to say, that that's totally fine. The problem is, it's whenever a lot of gender-neutral type stuff and and and, and is it's, it's overemphasized and it spills over into the church, so we can show society that we're bowing down to them. I'll give you an example. Um, I used to love the new international version of the Bible. Uh, It came out in 1984. I started using it in like 1992. I stopped using it in 2011 because they updated it with gender-neutral language. The problem I have with that is not that they took a Greek word that meant mankind and changed it from man to people. My problem is that they would take, take a verse that was clearly Clearly speaking in the Greek in the male gender, and they changed it to just say people or mankind. That's altering God's word. I'll give you another example. Um, You know, I believe, listen, I believe that a woman can be the president of the United States and she can rule the world, she can be a CEO, all of that. But scripture clearly teaches, and you can go look it up later, scripture clearly teaches that women should not be. Preachers, There are standards and lines that we have that are based upon gender that are clearly seen in Scripture that we absolutely cannot compromise. And what I'm about to say, and if I haven't already said enough that might be offensive to people, uh, what I'm about to say is extremely offensive in our culture. And that is, roles in marriage are based solely upon gender. They're based solely upon gender. If you want a Christian marriage, then Ephesians uh, tells you how to do it. The cultural view is called egalitarianism. Go look it up for what, what that means. It basically means I get my fair share. It reminds me of my kids arguing over what's fair and what's not fair. Well, you get this much, so I get this much. I have this much say-so, so you should have this much say-so. We don't believe that, As Christians, what we believe as Christians, as far as marriage is concerned, is a view called complementarianism. Go look it up. Complementarianism. It basically is husband and wife trying to outdo each other by putting the other first. It's a completely different model. If you want to read a great statement on complementarianism, go look up the Danvers Statement. D-A-N-V-E-R-S. Danvers Statement. It's a great statement on gender and marriage and complementarianism. Okay, let me give you a summary right quick. Um, I put this together. I know you can't see that. Take out your cell phone. Zoom it in. Take a picture. You can go back and study it later. This is essentially all of the major things. And I didn't talk about all of these things today. These are all of the major things that God says in his word about marriage, sex, sexual orientation, and gender. All all of the broad strokes. Parents, what I encourage you to do. Or grandparents, what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to take these truth statements Show them to your kids and grandkids and read these Bible verses with them. If they're old enough to read the Bible, if they're old enough to understand that they're sinners, if they're old enough to have a conversation, you should already be talking about these things with your children. I want to end on this. If you're a fornicator, if you're an adulterer, If you've been divorced, if you struggle with gender identity, if you have same-sex attraction, if you practice homosexuality, if you're not a loving husband or a submissive wife, I have a message from God for you. And here it is. I love you and I died for you. That's what God has to say to you today. Even if you are absolutely covered up with all of this stuff, some of you might say, Oh my goodness, I was a fornicator. I was an adulterer. I've been divorced. I'm, I, I'm, I'm a bad husband now or a bad wife. I mean, all, some, of, some of you might say, Most all of what you just said just describes me. My life is a wreck. Listen, God loves you, He loves you, He died for you. And he can do something amazing in your life. I love this verse. Anytime anytime I'm speaking to anyone about any type of of relational sin in their life, this verse always comes to my mind. It says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says what the unrighteous are. Those that are sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuality, and lists a whole bunch of other stuff, by the way. And then it says, look at this, and such were some of you. Do you know all that can be in your past? All those mistakes that you've made, that you're, listen, that you're carrying around guilt over, God does not want you to carry around guilt. You might say, well, my my wife and I, we we lived together prior uh, prior to getting married, and now, you know, what does God think about us? Listen, God is a forgiving God. And he can purify you. And he does not want you to walk around with guilt. You may say, well, I divorced my spouse a long time ago. And I shouldn't have. And, and, and now I'm just ruined forever. And that's what Isaiah said. He said, oh, well, me. I am undone. I'm ruined. And God, God touched him and he said, you're pure now. You know, you can be pure from this day forward. You can be pure it says you were, some of the, all that can be in the past, but look what happened. Look what happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Not because some preacher gave you a whole bunch of standards and said, now run out there and obey them. But in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. I'm willing to bet today that there is not a person in this room that there's not at least one of the things that I have said today that you would say, "Yep, that was me." And if it wasn't, then probably maybe I need to keep going. We could find something that's not relationally perfect about you. We're all in this together. Y'all, we're all in this together. If you are struggling with gender identity, listen, we're in this together. I struggle with identity issues too, just not in relation to gender. You see, I, I struggle with impure thoughts for people of the, same, of, 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 the, of the same sex. Listen, there's a lot of people in here that do that. Maybe not with the same sex, but with the opposite sex. It's, it's, it's still a violation of God's Word. We're all in this together. We want to pray for one another. We want to encourage one another. And there's one solution. There's just one solution. And that's Jesus. He's the one that can make all of that past tense. He can put it all behind you. He can put a bad marriage behind you. He can can put you being a bad husband or a bad wife. He can put that behind you. That sin that you can't undo, he can put that behind you. He can be gone. He can sanctify you, justify you. He can wash you. I don't know about you, but I need that. I want that. I I never stop needing that. You know, I'm so glad that Jesus didn't just save me once and just scoop me out in the world to say, okay, now fend for yourself. I'm glad that he keeps saving me for me. And maybe you need that right now. Maybe, Maybe you need some encouragement from the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Let's everybody bow our heads. And I want you to pray. I want you to ask Jesus to save you. Ask him to save you. If you've never been saved by the Lord, you've never never had the Spirit of God inside of you, ask Jesus to save you. Just say it. Just say, Jesus, save me. Just in prayer to him right now, just confess your sin. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask Him to save you. And if you are a Christian, and you're struggling with anything that I've talked about today, or or anything else for that matter, ask Jesus to keep saving you. He's there for you now. He wasn't just there for you a long time ago when you prayed to receive Christ. He's here to rescue you from your sin right now in this moment. Pray for Him ask him